So our sermon this morning is on 2 Kings chapters 1 through 2. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find 2 Kings chapter 1 on page 286. So turn there in your, in your Bibles. Um, we ordinarily would read the scripture passage up top, and we'd ordinarily have the uh, passage on the screen. Neither of those are the case this morning because it's just long. So it's, uh, it would be a, a, it, we're going to read through it as we go and walk through it as we go. And you're going to want to have a Bible in front of you as we go because that's going to be your only uh, opportunity to follow along with, with something. So grab a pew Bible if you don't have one. Flip there in your, on your, the app on your phone, whatever you need to do. And we'll go through 2 Kings 1 through uh, 2. The book of 2 Kings uh, traces... Um, you know, the, the, the story, the, the happenings in the nation uh, of Israel or the nations of Israel and Judah, respectively, uh, pretty much from the ministry of Elisha on through until the fall of Israel to the Assyrian Empire and the fall of Judah to the Babylonian uh, Empire. By the time, uh, by the time the, this book ends, in eight weeks where we'll arrive in our narrative, is that, uh, you know, the, the entire nation of Israel, Israel in, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, uh, are in captivity. Uh, and so we're going to kind of get from uh, the, the, the advent of the ministry of Elisha that we'll see today through there over the course of the next uh, eight weeks. Do a quick recap of the book of First Kings, uh, just to refresh your memory if you were here in the, the spring or to, um, yeah, just to catch you up uh, if you were, were not. Uh, the book of First Kings uh, picks up at the end of the life of King David. So King David is the greatest, best king in Israel, and we see his uh, ascendancy and his life kind of uh, charted out in the book of First and Second Samuel. So at the end of Second Samuel, the beginning of First Kings, David is an old man. He's about to, to die, and it kind of, you know, walks us through this story of, like, palace intrigue where, where David's uh, son Adonijah tries to become king, but he never does because it's ultimately meant for uh, Solomon. So then we see Solomon become king. We see his life and his reign. He's, uh, you know, just incredible wealth and incredible uh, wisdom on the part of King Solomon, um, arguably the richest person who's ever lived in, in all of humanity. I mean, incredibly rich, uh, taxation, trade, importing, exporting. Solomon is just like you know, a cash cow. He builds a huge temple, a big, beautiful palace. It's really incredible and really beautiful. But Solomon is also uh, a very flawed, kind of a tragic character as, as well. Um, he sins against God in some very significant ways. I mean, literally, you can kind of trace out some of the descriptions of Solomon in First Kings and kind of cross-reference them against some explicit commands that God makes in Deuteronomy, and he, like, breaks all of them. Like, it's almost like he, was try- like he was trying to. Like, he was, like, specifically checking off the boxes of sins that he wanted to, to commit. Uh, not the least of which was toward the end of his life. He turns away from the Lord. He marries tons and tons of foreign uh, women, and they t- pull him away from faithfulness to God into idolatry. And then, uh, when Solomon hands his kingdom over to his son, Re- Rehoboam, uh, the problem is, Rehoboam is an idiot. So he um, doesn't listen to the counsel of older, wiser, godly men. He listens to the counsel of all of his contemporaries, his college buddies. 
uh, and so the kingdom is torn in two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, then they, it kind of walks through a series of kings in both uh, you know, kind of regions, most of which are bad, most of which are unfaithful, most of which fail to live up to the standard that was set by David. And we end the book of 1 Kings. You've got Jehoshaphat reigning as king down in Judah, um, and you've got Ahaziah reigning as king up in Israel. That's where 1 Kings ends, and that's right where 2 Kings picks up, because again, they were written as one, as one book. So it's just kind of one steady narrative all the way through. And we're going to see, like I said, uh, king, the, those two kings reigning. We're going to see the ministry of Elisha. And we're going to kind of trace it through to the fall of um, the, uh, the Babylon, the fall of Israel to Assyria, the fall of Judah to Babylon. So uh, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in to, first, to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, and we're just going to walk uh, through it. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to have a Bible and to be able to read the Bible and, and experience um, you know, your, you, you speaking to us. We recognize that when we read our Bibles, you, the sovereign God and creator of the universe, are literally speaking to us through it. And so we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. We pray that you would open our hearts illumine our minds, and help us to hear from you and to meditate on your word together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of King Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. So, uh, King Ahab, of, of a lot of the kings in Israel were bad in First Kings, Ahab was probably the worst. Uh, he, uh, you know, leaned hard into the worship of idols, fund, funded founded and then funded, um, you know, the, the, the institution of idol worship in the, the land. I mean, it existed before him, but he kind of built it up and supported it and tried to, you know, make it, make it happen, often at the behest of his wicked wife, uh, Queen Jezebel. Uh, but apparently one of the things that, that King uh, Ahab did was uh, kind of broker and then just maintain a relationship with Moab, which was kind of in the southeast, uh, kind of on, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Oh yeah, we can just leave that up actually. This will be a good thing to have. So, so Moab is down here, uh, and, and uh, King Ahab was reigning kind of up here in the Israel-Samaria region. So they had a relationship with Moab, uh, but that relationship was really, you give us money like every month and we don't kill you. Or if someone else tries to kill you, maybe we'll try to help you out, depending on how good you've been on making your payments over the last, you know, few, few months. So that was, that was the relationship between Israel and Moab. And apparently when, Moab di- when Ahab dies, Moab is like, hey, like, let's renegotiate. Like, uh, we don't want to pay tribute anymore, so if you want any money from us, uh, King Ahaziah, then come down and take it. Ahab was big and strong. We don't think you are, so we're going to try to renegotiate our our arrangement. So that's kind of what's happening in the geopolitical kind of broader uh, narrative of Israel with Moab. We're going to see that more in chapter 3 uh, next week, the, the, the dealings between Israel and Judah and Moab. But for this week, zoom in and kind of look at uh, King Ahaziah and the, the household of Ahaziah. Um, you know, he kind of makes a little, a little uh, domestic blunder here in verse 2. It says, now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So... You know, like when you're up in your attic looking for Christmas decorations, 
and you just like fall right through because you step in a place where there's no you know support or anything. Ahaziah did that, and apparently his rehab from his fall and his injury uh, didn't go very well, and then it kind of turned into some sort of sickness or illness that you know maybe he thought he was going to die. And so he sent messengers telling them, "Go and acquire of Baal Zabub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness." Go, like, get a word from the, from the oracle about if I'm going to recover and what I should do. Maybe, I mean, if I need to, you know, pay a little bit of money, you know, throw some extra money into the offering plate for him so that he will heal me, I'm happy to do that. Verse 3, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise and go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to acquire, you're going to inquire from Baal Zabub, the god of Ekron? Like, you're in Israel. I'm the God of Israel. Why are you going to inquire from some other God from some other nation? So, so now, Elijah, go, uh, yeah, go say, Thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So God sends Elijah to intercept the messengers of, of Ahaziah, to tell them this message and say, Take that back to your king. He's toast. He's a dead man. So Ahaziah heads back, or no, I'm sorry, the messengers head back to Ahaziah to tell him, and as soon as they do, verse 5, he's like, why have you returned? Like, did you forget your keys? Like, I sent you on this big, long journey. Why are you back? You had one job to do. What are you doing back here already? And they said to him, verse 6, there came a man to meet us, and he said, go back to the king who sent you and say that God said, like, well, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending me to inquire of Baal Zabub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed which you've gone up. You shall surely die. Right? King, we would have loved to go uh, inquire of Baal Zabub, but we got intercepted by someone else. And then King Ahaziah says, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, You wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, That's Elijah the Tishbite. Right? Like Seinfeld, right? Newman. Right? Like, they describe him. He's like, I know who that is. It's Newman. That's Elijah. Right? So Ahaziah's like, man, this is not going to be a good day for me because Elijah is always just causing trouble. So then the king, verse 9, sends a captain of 50 men with his 50. Right? Go find Elijah. Get him. Take 50 armed soldiers with you and tell him the king wants to see you. Get back here to talk with the, the king. And they go up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and they said, O man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah says, if I am a man of God, meaning if there really is a God in Israel, despite the fact that your king doesn't believe in him, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down and consumed them. Right? This is a a message to Ahaziah. I'm not your puppet. I'm not your lapdog. I don't do what you say. I do what the God of Israel says, which, by the way, you have denied him. You have sinned against him. You have sought counsel from other... There's a war going on here between the God that I am the prophet of and the God that you are seeking to get a word from. They are in conflict, cosmic conflict, And I am on the side of God, not the side of of Baal. You serve a false God, so you don't give orders to me, a prophet of the true God. And because you have 50 men are dead, 50 wives are now widows, 
children are now, are now fatherless because of your sin and your pride and your idolatry and your presumption to speak against the God of Israel and to treat the prophet of the God of Israel as if he, is, uh, as if he works for you instead of works for the God of the universe. Verse 11, and then the king sent to him another captain with 50 more men. Let's run it back. I'm sure it's going to go better. And he answered them, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. Right before it was come down. So you'd think that 50 men have died. Maybe he's going to like ease up a little bit. Maybe say please this time instead of, you know. No, now it's even more presumptuous. Come down quickly. Come down now. Get like, I'm the king. You're not. Get here in front of me right now. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And fire came down and consumed these men. Same thing. Same thing happens again. And then the king sent another captain with a third 50. Right? He's not not, not learning, not kind of uh, recognizing that he is actually not as in control, not as sovereign as he likes to, to think it is. And the third captain, listen to what the third captain says. He says, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains. Now please let my life be... He's saying, I get it, Elijah, that like the king is a jerk. He's prideful. It's very easy to be prideful and really a big shot from, like, from the safety of your privileged palace, Right? moving pawns on a chessboard, it's very easy to not really be concerned with what happens to them, but it's a lot harder to be brave uh, in front of the person who can and, and very well might destroy you by fire from, from heaven. So he says, the king may very well be prideful and may very well be deserving of judgment. I'm going to be humble. Please don't kill me. I have... I'm armed, as are these 50 men, and yet we recognize that you are far, your God is far stronger than any weapons that we can bring out against you. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. Right? I've made my point. No more soldiers need to die. A hundred men have already died. I've made it clear to Ahaziah that I'm in charge, not Baal. So let's go have a a conversation with him. Then he arose and he went down with the king and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal Zabub, the god of Ekron, is it because there was no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Right? King, what am I, chopped liver? Like, I'm the god who founded this nation. I made it. I called Abraham out in, in to, to start it. I brought Moses and them out of, of Egypt. I brought them across the Jordan. I planted them here. I'm, I exist. I am real. If you're going to ask someone whether or not you're going to die from your, you know, falling through your attic, ask me. I'm the true God. Don't ask some fake God who doesn't exist. And because you did that, Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed on which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Right? You sought other gods instead of me. So, asked and answered. You're you're not going to to survive beyond where you are. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken, and his son Jehoram 
became king in his place in the second year of, oh, no, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Jehoram was not his son. Jehoram was his brother. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Joseph, the king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. So Ahaziah dies with no heir, no one to, to take over his throne, and so his brother has to. And it says, the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, all that he did are then not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So, I mean, you even the reason why I kind of tripped up over that, that verse there is it's a little bit clunky. There's two guys named Jehoram in this verse, right? There's, um, there's Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, who was reigning down in Judah. And then there's Ahaziah reigning up in Israel. So, so while Jehoram is reigning in Judah, Ahaziah dies in Israel, and Ahaziah is succeeded by another guy named Jehoram. So for a moment there, there's two, there's two regions, Israel and Judah, both of which have a king named Jehoram, two different guys. The one down in Judah is Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. The one up in Israel is Jehoram, the son of Ahab, the brother of Ahaziah. That's where we're at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And see Gilgal kind of right here uh, in the middle near Bethel and Jericho. And then the Jordan River kind of runs along between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So Elijah and Elisha are there in Gilgal. We met Elijah in 1 Kings 17. We met Elisha, his, you know, his protege, his disciple uh, in 1 Kings 19. They're hanging out in Gilgal. And Elijah says to Elisha, Please stay here because God has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, I will not leave you. And they went down to Bethel together. Right? I'm, wh- wherever you go is where I'm going to, to go. And then when they get to Bethel, the, the sons of the prophets who were there came out to Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? And he says, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Right? Word's getting around. Elijah's getting old. He's about to retire. He's about to end his ministry. Aren't you aware of this? He's like, yeah, I do, but be cool, man. Like, don't just chill out. Don't like make a big deal out of it. Well, you know, this is going to happen as the Lord, uh, you know, sees fit. Verse four. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here because the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. So we went from Gilgal to Bethel. I'm going to Jericho. And Elisha says, Well, if you're going to Jericho, I'm going to Jericho. As sure as the Lord lives, as surely as you live, I will not leave you. And they go together. Then the sons of the prophets in Jericho said the same thing that the ones in Bethel did, right? They say, do you know that the Lord's going to take your master away from you? He says, yeah, I know. Be cool, man. Be be quiet. Don't make a big deal out of it. So then they're there. Now they're in Jericho. And then Elijah says, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan, which is a river. He's like, what, are you going to go swim in the river? What's going on? The Lord has sent me to the Jordan River. He's tried three times to get rid like I'm I'm about to my life is almost over, my ministry's almost over. I just want some peace and quiet. I just want to go out with some dignity. Leave me alone. Elisha beat it. He says, No, as sure as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. And they go on together. And now fifty men, sons of the prophets, went and stood at some distance from them as they were standing by the Jordan. So they've made their way from Jericho to the Jordan River. And now there's a little crowd gathering. They're watching. Like, what, are they going to go swimming? They don't have a boat. How, what are they gonna, how are they going to try to get across the Jordan River? And then Elijah takes his cloak and he rolls it up and he strikes the water. And the water was parted to one side into the other until the two of them could go over on dry ground. 
If this is reminding you of Moses leading the people of God through the Red Sea after they flee from Pharaoh, it should because it's kind of a callback. It's reminiscent of Moses leading them there. And it should also remind you uh, of Joshua chapter 3. Because, so, so when, um, when the, the people of God flee from Pharaoh, they, go through the, they part the Red Sea and go through it, and then they wander around in the wilderness, and eventually they find themselves on the eastern side of the Jordan River, waiting to go into Israel, and the, the water is parted there again. So it's part of the more famous one is Exodus 14 to 15 with Moses, uh, but it also happens in Joshua chapter 3 with Joshua. So this is symbolic. God is saying, I called my people into this land, right? Moses, I called Moses to lead them, and then I called Joshua to pick up where he left off. And now, years later, I am calling Elijah to be my prophet and to proclaim my word to my people. And then I'm going to call Elisha to pick up where he leaves. Elijah is the new Moses, and Elisha is the new Joshua. That's a, that's a, a theme that the author is trying to kind of make very clear with this symbolism here. When you think of the ministry of Elijah, think also of Moses. When you think of the ministry of Elisha, think also of Joshua. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Dude, just ask me what you want before I'm taking it. Like, quit following me around. You obviously want something or else you would have stopped in Gilgal or Bethel or Jericho. I, I, you know, what, what do you want from me? And he says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, some, you know, some have taught that this means that Elisha is asking Elijah... To, to give him twice as much of the Holy Spirit, right? Power, you know, twice as much spiritual or prophetic power so that I can do everything that you did uh, times two. And it's true, I mean, if you trace out the miracles of Elijah, uh, Elisha does about twice as many miracles in the course of First and Second Kings as Elijah. Elijah does about eight um, from First Kings, uh, um, yeah, from Second King, or yeah, sorry, from First Kings seventeen to Second Kings two, does about eight miracles, and Elisha does about fourteen miracles from Second Kings two to, to seven. So, kind of makes kind of makes sense. But what's more likely, uh, the meaning behind this question is not so much. I want to be twice the prophet you are. I want to be twice as powerful as you are. I want to be a bigger, better, stronger, powerful uh, prophet than you. Although in a lot of senses he was, it's probably. Not so much what he's asking, as much as it is a reference to this idea of, um, in Israel, the firstborn son would receive a double portion of the, in, the inheritance, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 21 kind of specifies these rules for inheritance. Basically, uh, you know, whenever the father's about to die, you just take all the sons that he has and kind of uh, assign equal uh, portions of his estate to the sons, except the firstborn son gets gets twice. If you have, you know, four sons, then the, the youngest three get 20% each, and the oldest one gets 40%, right? It's kind of how, how uh, inheritance was handled in, in ancient Israel. And that 40% was kind of, it was, to, it was to say, this son, he is the successor. He is the, he carries on the family name. He takes what the father did, and he kind of pushes it forward 
forges it on into the next generation. All of the sons have uh, meaningful, you know, lives and destinies and ministries and whatever else, but this one son is kind of the, the successor to the father, the one who takes what the father did and, and carries it forward on into the future. And Elisha's saying, I want to be that. I want to be your successor. I want to be your spiritual, prophetic firstborn son who takes what you did and carries it on into the next generation, kind of moves the football further down the field. I want to be that to you. And Elijah says, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, so it shall be for you. If you do not see me, it shall not be so. So don't look at your phone, right? Don't be just, if, if I'm, if I'm gone and you were, you know, chatting up some, you know, person on the side of the road, like you, so if you, you better like keep your eyes fixed on, on me and make sure that you see me when I go. And then uh, verse 11, as they went, they talked and behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And then Elijah went by them by a whirlwind up into heaven. So this remarkable, supernatural, miraculous, you know, taking of uh, Elijah into heaven right? Elijah is one of two people in the entire Bible that, that, is, that doesn't die, but he kind of goes by this miraculous, uh, you know, taken up into heaven with God. It happens to um, Enoch in, chap- in Genesis chapter 5. It happens to Elijah right here. And Elisha sees it. So that means I'm the designated successor of the prophetic ministry of Elijah. I'm the, the, the firstborn son who receives the double portion of the, the inheritance. I'm the, the I'm Elijah. I'm, I'm Elijah's successor. This is an exciting moment for him. And he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And so now Elisha's like, all right, uh, Elijah told me if I saw him be taken up, I would be the next guy. I would be the, 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 you know, the next iterate, the, the one who carries on Elijah's ministry. So let's see if it works. So he just did the thing with, he rolled up his cloak and hit the water and it parted. Let's see. So then Elijah tears his clothes, uh, you know, in, in mourning and grief that, that his, his mentor is gone. But then he takes the cloak of Elijah, and he goes back and stands on the bank of the Jordan. And he takes the cloak, and he strikes the water just like Elijah did. And he said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, right? Elijah said I would be the prophet. He said that if I, you know, I would have a prophetic ministry like him. Did that happen? I need to see it for myself. And when he strikes the water, the water is parted, and Elisha walks back over. So presumably they went all the way across the Jordan River just for Elijah to be taken up so that then Elisha could walk right back across the Jordan River back toward Jericho. Verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, they said, hey, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Elisha is the designated successor, right? The, the, the next version of Elijah. And they came to meet him, and they bowed to the ground, and they said, Behold, we, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Elisha, we've got a big company of people. Let us go and seek your master. It may be that the servant of the Lord has caught him up and cast him into some mountain or into some valley. we got a search party. We're going to go find Elijah. Two guys went across the river. Only one guy came back. We're here. We're ready to go find Elijah and make sure that he's okay. And Elisha's like, No, nah, don't waste your time. Don't send those men for a search party. It's going to be fine. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, all right, fine, send him. Like, if, you know, 
come on, please, let us go. We want to find him. And so he knows full well that it's a lost cause because they're not going to find Elijah. Elijah's been taken up into heaven, and yet they annoy him until he finally says, sure, go right ahead. And they sent 50 men, and for three days they sought Elijah, but they did not find him. Note to self, right? If, If a prophet of God that you just saw be you know, recognized by God as his prophet, and you have just verbally acknowledged and declared that he is the prophet of God, when he tells you not to go look for something, don't go look for something. It's just a waste of time. So they come back, and he's still staying in Jericho three days later, and he's like, didn't I say don't go? Why'd you go? I said don't go. It's a waste of your, of your time, right? If you're you know, I told you he was, I knew Elijah wasn't there because I saw him go up into heaven. Why did you waste your time uh, with, with that? Now the men, of, now the men of, the, the, of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. So Elijah is gone. They've looked for him, couldn't find him. Now Elisha is kind of becoming universally recognized as the successor to Elijah, the main kind of go-to, head honcho, prophet in Israel of God. If you want to know what God says, go to, don't go to Elijah anymore. He's gone. Go to Elisha. Or if you have a problem, if you have an issue, if you have something that is causing, that's wreaking havoc, Elisha's the guy to ask about the job. That's what they do, right? We've got this problem. I mean, the, the, the city of Jericho is situated near a spring that's called the Sultan's Spring. Now it's called, like, they call it the Spring of Elisha. But it's called the Sultan's Spring, and it's a freshwater spring that would bring, that's why the city was founded where it was, is it was a very desirable location next to a source of fresh water, which is what you need for people to kind of form a city around it. But the problem was the water supply in that spring was being contaminated. We don't know how. Scholars, I mean, a bunch, bunch of theories. The, some speculate that there was a, a geological, kind of a seis, seismological shift that was causing radioactivity. It was like exposure to radioactivity that was, causing, that was making the water bad or making it make people sick. Some people think it was infested by parasites. You drink it and you get, get sick. But whatever it was, you, you couldn't drink it. You couldn't water your crops or your animals with it. And so it was kind of like like home values were like declining in Jericho. They're like, you know, this was a great place to live, raise your kids. Now it's not. The town is going to, you know, it's just, it's not good. We're, we're, we're struggling. We're getting mad. And so Elisha says, verse 20, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And they brought it to him. And then he went to the spring of water and he threw salt in it. And he said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage will come from it. And so the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. So, I mean, two miracles right, you know, right on the heels of one another. The water, you know, hitting the water with a cloak and now, uh, you know, uh, taking this one tiny little bowl of salt and throwing it into a, a, a spring of water that was causing infertility and, and death and all kinds of things. Um, you know, Elisha throws the salt into the spring. So it's not, like it's not, it's not a chemical reaction. Like, there's like new water coming through this spring constantly. So one tiny little bowl of salt would have just been washed away. So it wasn't like a chemical reaction. This is like a miraculous, supernatural thing that, that Elisha uh, does. And then it says, he went up from there to Bethel. 
So he's like retracing his steps, right? They go from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho, across the Jordan, back across the Jordan to Jericho, and now he's going to re- retracing the steps back to, uh, back to Bethel. And while he was on the way, this is a weird one, while he was on the way to Bethel, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him and said, go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. Very strange. So, a few things, like, so one, the word small boys could mean, you know, small boys. You know, yeah, little, little kids playing with toys. But it could, it could uh, also represent anyone from age 12, even on up to age 30. It just means a young, a young person who is not yet uh, married and hasn't kind of started their, their life. It's a, it's, a young, it's a child, it's a kid. It could be teenagers. There's a lot of them. There's dozens of these uh, boys or kids there. Sounds like they're looking for trouble. They're taunting him. They're jeering at him. And when they say, go on up, you bald head, we don't really know what that means. It's kind of weird. I mean, maybe they're just, you know, making fun of his bald head. But uh, it's, you know, some scholars think that uh, perhaps Elisha had shaved his head bald kind of as a a symbol of his devotion to God, right? Kind of a, a, a... a, you know, a, a visible symbol that anyone could see. I am a prophet of God. I, you know, am, am aligned with, I am an agent of the God of Israel. And so he, he had kind of cut his hair uh, in a way that was not super uh, common in that day to let everyone know that. So if that's the case, then essentially what you've got here is a pack of teenagers, rowdy, you know, dozens of them that are basically saying, like, like go on like elijah just uh, apparently elijah went up to heaven why don't you do that too beat it get out of here like we don't we want we don't want you here we worship baal here we don't worship god we don't need a prophet of god who shaved his head to show everyone that he's faithful to god being here with us we don't why don't you do like your mentor did and leave us go away beat it and there very well might have been an implied threat of physical violence given the number of them and kind of how, how intimidating the, the situation uh, might have, have been. Leave or we'll make you leave. And when Elisha turned around, he saw them and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of them. And from there he went to Mount Carmel and then he returned to Samaria. This is a very strange episode, a very strange uh, event that, that we, we see here. I mean, we, you know, bears mauling kids, a hundred soldiers died, consumed by fire from heaven. I mean, this, a lot of people point to this passage and say, that is weird. Like, there's no way, there's, that's either not real or there's no way that God is good if he would do that, if God would summon bears to attack children. No, no, right? no God that I believe in would ever do something like that. That's cruel and, and sadistic and, and crazy. It's understandable. It's an understandable objection to, to hear, but I would submit that it might be born out of a perspective that is less healthy than we might understand it to be at first. Complaints like that, right? 
I can't believe that God would do that. No God that I worship would ever do something like that. There's no way that God could ever do that and still be, be good. Is kind of born out of this position that says, humanity is at the center. God exists to serve man, right? Who does God think he is to interrupt the existence and the plans of those boys like that and send the, the boys are in the center, the boys are in control, the boys are entitled, and God is obligated to them. And so, so how dare God do something like that to them? I would submit that this is a flawed perspective, a flawed understanding of the, the nature of the universe, right? In reality, humanity is not at the center of the universe and God exists to serve humanity or to do what's right by humanity. God exists at the center of the universe and humanity exists to serve God and to do right by God. So the question is not who does God think he is to send those bears after those people, but rather the question is who do those people think that they are that they would disregard the existence of and the the glory of and the sovereignty of of God, that they would worship Baal instead of God, that they would mock a prophet of God and shoo him away and tell him to get out of their, you know, space and their their place, right? Who do those people think that they are standing face-to-face with a prophet of God, standing face-to-face with God himself and, and presuming that they... Uh, you know, can tell them to, to leave and get away from, from them, right? This is the, the God that created them and the God who is sovereign over them that they're treating with disrespect. When we presume that God owes us the life that we want, when we presume to stand in judgment over God and say things like, Get on out of here. Or, or no God that I believe in would ever do something like that. We, are, we, we have supplanted God from his rightful position at the, at the center of our existence and kind of moved him to the periphery and put ourselves squarely in the, the center. God does not owe us the life that we want. We owe God everything that we have. And that kind of brings us to the, the main point of application that I want us to consider from this, from this text, this story about, you know, King Ahaziah and then, and then Elijah and, and Elisha. And it's really the main point of application from the whole book of 2 Kings that we're going to see as we work through it, which is that God is at the center. God is... God is not... This, uh, you know, um, you know, damsel in distress who wishes that things would go some other way, but unfortunately, you know, uh, you know, he's it's not, and there's nothing that he can do about it. God is at the center. God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over human history, right? Psalm one fifteen says, "Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he." pleases. God's will is going to come to pass. All throughout the entire book of 2 Kings, we're going to see 
God installs kings on the throne of Israel and Judah as he sees fit. And then when he decides he doesn't want them there anymore, God removes them from the throne and God puts someone else there in his place. And when he decides that the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah have kind of uh, used up all of the leash, all of the grace that he wanted to give them, God is going to send another country to come in and besiege them and, and, and take them into captivity and exile. God is in charge. God is the king. God accomplishes his will. God doesn't work for you. God doesn't exist to do your will. God does whatever he pleases. And God is holy and righteous, and he brings every sin into judgment. Judgment is real. God, punishment for sin is real. Hell is real. People are really going to be there as a result of their sinning against God, their rebellion against God. God's holiness and righteousness is not to be trampled upon by prideful sinners. And if it does, then people die, right? When, when Ahaziah treats God and the prophet of God with derision, people die. When these Boys, uh, you know, mock God and mock the prophet of God that was sent to proclaim the word of God. People die. God is sovereign over human history. He does whatever he pleases. And God is holy and righteous and he brings every sin into judgment. That's the, the, the drumbeat that we're going to see over and over and over in Second Kings. God is sovereign. He does what he pleases. God is holy, and God brings sin into judgment. There's also something else that I don't want us to miss when we look at 2 Kings verses 1 through 2, and really kind of on through the rest of Elisha's ministry, because it's profoundly important. And that is what Elisha's ministry is ultimately pointing forward to. The new covenant that was inaugurated by Jesus. So we mentioned earlier that Moses and Joshua had this kind of mentor, disciple, you know, predecessor, successor relationship that ultimately pointed forward to Elijah and Elisha. And we kind of saw how the, the parallels between their, their ministries and going through the, the Jordan kind of all sets up this like, like uh, Elijah is the new Moses and Elisha is the new Joshua. And that is true. But Joshua, as he succeeds Moses, and then Elisha, as he succeeds Elijah, both point forward to Jesus, who himself succeeds John the Baptist, and who himself ushers in the new covenant that succeeds the old covenant. Give me just a minute to uh, draw a brief sketch. It's taken largely from Gary Schultz and, and Bruce Waltke, a couple of uh, theologians. 
Elisha's ministry begins after he receives a double portion of Elijah's spirit on the other side of the Jordan River. Jesus' public ministry begins when John the Baptist baptizes him in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit empowers Elisha to perform all sorts of miracles throughout the book of 2 Kings. The Holy Spirit empowers Jesus to perform all sorts of miracles throughout the four Gospels. In Luke 4, Jesus himself he refers to himself. He, he describes himself in terms of, and he references Elisha, implying that he is the true and better Elisha. Jesus is saying that uh, I am the spirit-empowered prophet to whom Elisha's life and ministry uh, pointed, right? Like Elisha, Jesus gathers faithful followers and feeds them miraculously. Like Elisha, Jesus is an itinerant uh, miracle worker who brings life and blessing and judgment through the power of the Holy Spirit to a people who had forgotten God. Both Elijah, or both Elisha and Jesus uh, cleanse lepers. They both heal the sick. They both reverse death by raising sons and restoring them to their mothers. They both help widows who are in desperate circumstances. They are both kinsmen, redeemers, who save from slavery. They both feed the hungry. They both minister to the Gentiles. They both prepare and sit at tables to share meals with sinners. They both lead captives. They both have a a covetous and a sinful disciple. And they both end their lives in a life-giving tomb from which people Flee, right? Elisha's miracles testify to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life in a way that is unique in all of Scripture. Nothing, no one that we've seen up until then uh, displayed the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit like it happened with Elisha until Jesus, who then met it and exceeded it. Right? Jesus is the one uh, who God testifies to his ministry as his only begotten Son through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit upon him. Jesus is the second Elisha in the same way that Elisha is the second Joshua. Joshua points forward to Elisha and both of them. And the name Joshua means God saves. The name Josh, a, der, a derivative of the name Joshua is Yeshua, is Jesus. The name Jesus comes from the name Joshua. Matthew one twenty one. God says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Translation, Jesus is the new Elisha, the new, like, the, the, the Savior that Joshua was resembling and reflecting, but pointing forward to. Elisha stands in that tradition and does the same thing, but ultimately neither of them can quite fulfill the ministry of saving God's people with finality in an ultimate and real and true way. Jesus does. Elisha's life and ministry in the Holy Spirit serve as a preview of what God, of what life with God would look like under the new covenant, and Jesus makes that preview a reality. For everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him. Everyone who looks to Jesus' death on the cross and trusts in it so that they can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Jesus brings a final fulfillment of what Elisha's ministry was holding out as the future hope for the people of God. And Jesus' final fulfillment of that ministry, his death on the cross is what we remember and it's what we celebrate when we 
take the Lord's Supper together. We remember his death on the cross. We trust in it. We receive the benefits of it together as we, as we eat and drink the bread and the, the cup. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, if you are a a member of the people of God, then we invite you to celebrate communion together with us. The guys are... um, you're going to come up and play some music when I pray. You can come forward down the middle aisle here and then kind of head back to your seat along the, the sides. Receive the elements. There's gluten-free bread and, and juice. And when you get it, just take a moment. While the music is, is going, take a moment. Think, reflect, pray. Confess your sin to Christ. Give it to him. Receive and enjoy the grace of Christ as he offers it to you. And then eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus to symbolize how we have taken the grace of Christ and, and received it personally into our, into our souls. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion. If you're actively running from God in, in intentional, unrepentant sin, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ. We'd invite you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus so that you can receive the grace that he offers freely to you. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus forgives our sin. And Jesus invites us into his presence. And so this is an opportunity to remember that and celebrate that together. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, you are sovereign over all things. You are holy and righteous in your judgment against sin. Lord Jesus, you are the spirit-empowered prophet who inaugurates the new covenant where we can be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to you. So Lord, we uh, come before you this morning. We look to you. We trust in you to save us because you are our only hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.